0: Radio, check for it. 10 power is a cow, 50,000 laps. Oh, that sound is beautiful. Drag This is Bradley J on air control. We're listening at dawn. And our radios are tuned to 10 30. In our because it's locked on WBZ. Oh, do you read me? Affirmative, I read you. What are you talking about?
1: This conversation can serve purpose.
0: It's WBZ and you are Jay Talk and we're live midnight to five. I know a lot of you are, well, you have a tight relationship with animals. I do and it, it's getting increasingly tight. I'm appreciating animals more and more. And getting more and more upset when I see them mistreated. I posted today uh, photos of these two businessmen who had killed an elephant and a baby elephant. And uh, I'm just beside myself with rage when I see that kind of thing. So I'm getting more and more close to animals. And I I have a guest who's very close to animals here. Aisha Akhtar, M-D-M-P-H. And the book she has written is Our Symphony with Animals on Health empathy and our shared destinies that title actually needs lots of splaining, and we will do that how do you do doctor
1: i'm good how are you doing
0: Uh, very well you have a great connection that's always helpful
1: so great and by the way i just want to say i love that introduction music i love the song
0: oh thank you now can you give an overview of this this book it's it needs one because of the of the expansive title
1: yeah. Um, so uh, it's it's uh, the book is sort of uh, has two stories in a sense. Um, that throughout the book, there's um, a story of my past childhood and what happened to me that really um, showed how my empathy for animals was so good for me. And it's a story of my sexual abuse. And then I befriended a dog that my parent that my uh, grandparents adopted who unfortunately was also being abused by another uncle, a different uncle from the one abusing mine, uh, abusing me. And, so, and Sylvester's abuse was a physical abuse. I came upon my uncle throwing Sylvester against the walls repeatedly, really throwing him and kicking him in order to, to, quote, train him. And, you know, I was nine years old at the time. Sylvester was my best friend. I fell absolutely in love with him. And it really devastated me to see what was happening to him. And over, over the months where his abuse was occurring, at some point, I understood the, the similarity between his abuse and mine. In this, I think at some level, I, I sensed that abuse is about power and, and those without power, and I made that connection between his and mine. And I, because of my strong empathy for him, I developed the courage to finally speak out and end his abuse. And that led to me speaking out and ending my abuse. So that's the past story that runs through the book. And then now, as a neurologist, I'm looking upon that past story, and I'm wondering, you know, where does that empathy for animals come from? Because I think it's a story that a lot of people have in one way or another, or people have very strong bonds with animals, as you you noted. Um, And there's an inherent, I think there's a, an inherent desire by our species to connect with other species. You know, when you think about it, there's no other species out there that routinely goes out and adopts other animals into their family, right? You know, um, we hear about other, other animals sometimes adopting animals of other species, but that's not routine. We're the only species that does it routinely. And I think that it says something really strong about who we are and our desire to connect with other animals. So the, the, the story then is my journey also now as a professional, exploring this empathy for animals, how, do, how does it develop, and what does it do for us? What does it do when we uh, acknowledge and feel that empathy for animals, and what does it do when we don't? So I'm looking at it from um, in a sense from a, from a medical perspective and a social history, social science perspective.
0: Okay, I generated three questions from your,
1: okay.
0: from your open. Number one, you may, you talk about uh, a species wide desire to connect with animals when it comes to human humans, but I also see just as strongly and and probably more prevalently, at least as prevalently, a desire to dominate, a desire to uh, treat as you know dirt animals. You see. We see them treated badly in puppy mills. You see them treated badly in factory farming. You see them uh, treated badly by industry. And their habitats r- ruined. What about this this desire to dominate? And which is stronger?
1: Yeah, it's definitely there. And um, so you know, the the book explores that side as well. So it explores what what I think, and from you know my traveling around the country and interviewing people who have suppressed their empathy for animals, I think there's a strong pressure, societal pressure on many of us to suppress that empathy for animals. And it starts for some of us in childhood and it continues. But in, there's some studies now that are suggesting that suppressing that empathy for animals is causing harm to us, for some as individuals and to us as society as a whole. Because when we experience, when we acknowledge kindness, and when we experience kindness, and we acknowledge empathy for animals, it's 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 inevitable that we will also feel that towards each other. But the flip side is, is when we when we condone or we support or we personally inflict violence on in other animals, that actually seeps into society. That violence seeps into society. There have been some studies that really suggest that the, for example, slaughterhouse workers, because of the, you know, slaughterhouse workers are killing sometimes hundreds of animals, maybe thousands of animals a day, and there's no way that doesn't impact their psyche. And there are studies that are suggesting now that they're coming out of those slaughterhouses with. PTSD, drug abuse, depression, and they're more likely to um, get involved with criminal activities and abuse of their spouses and their children as well.
0: So we're the only species that routinely tries to interact with animals the way we do. What is it about us, I guess it's probably our brain, what is it about our brain's setup that benefits from an interaction with animals in a way that others just do not?
1: I think so. Um, you know, we 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 know that even just being by, with animals often benefits us almost immediately and physically. So, for example, if you're when you're playing with your dog, or someone's uh, petting a purring cat, caressing a, a purring cat, what we're seeing is that when this happens, the person is experiencing a decrease in his blood pressure, decrease in his heart rate, his um, um, the neurochemicals that make us feel good, like oxytocin and dopamine, increase during that time. And we're seeing other physiological changes that can impact our health long term. In other words, being with animals can actually be physically good for us. Any idea, any
0: idea why, though?
1: So I think, I think the reason why is because they're different from us. And thank God for that. You know, you, you think about it. So I love my mom. I love my dad. I love them tremendously, but they can annoy me like crazy at times, right? We can have arguments. We can have fights, and and they can cause, you know, stress and pressure in my life at times, and we all feel that with each other, right? So humans, we cause a lot of stress upon each other, but with animals, they don't do that. Not really. You know, there may be some temporary stresses, but... They, they help release us from that human-generated pressure in our lives and help us step away from that. I think that's why, because the, when we're with other animals, we kind of slow down and we relax a little bit more and we step out of that human-centric life, even if it's just temporarily. And I think that's why being with animals can have such a calming effect on our system's and on our mentality as well. If,
0: if the cause of both is the same, do you think it's likely that a, an animal abuser is going to be a sexual abuser?
1: That's, that's very often the case. And studies have shown that um, there's a high correlation between um, animal abuse and other forms of abuse. So spousal abuse, child abuse, and, and murders and rape. And rape. Um, a lot of studies have been done, and so that's that's almost pretty well established now. In fact, the FBI has now declared, has now um, now categorizes animal abuse as it does um, the highest types of crimes because they recognize that link between abuse of animals and abuse of other human beings. You know, it's, it, it's all about, it's about how, it, it, you know, it should be obvious to most of us that, this would happen, right? If you, if you can hurt any living creature, any creature who can suffer, if you can do that, it's, it's not that hard to then go and do the same thing to a human being. And we're seeing that again. And in my book, I actually, when I start, the, the, the middle section of the book looks at what happens when we um, ignore or suppress our empathy for animals. And I start with... Um, uh, the story of a serial killer. And um, there's uh, Keith Jesperson, who is convicted of uh, killing, murder, raping and killing eight women. And he's now serving um, life at the Oregon State Penitentiary. And we, we formed a, a professional relationship of sort for about a year in which we conversed by phone for a long time and by letters. And then finally I went and met him face to face. And, you know, it... it It's 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 incredibly it was became incredibly um, uh, poignant how he he Keith had a natural inherent empathy for animals when he was a child, but because of the others around him, especially his father, he learned to suppress that empathy, and he started to abuse a lot of animals. He ended up killing a lot of animals, and it was almost inevitable then that he would go and kill these eight women, and he recognizes that connection. And that's an extreme case, but that's common with non-extreme cases. So, you know, that's a serial killer, but, you know, the so-called everyday crimes are linked with abuse of animals as well.
0: All right. You know, when you were, you yourself abused, you were powerless. And when you observed Sylvester being abused, you were powerless powerless to stop either. Do you feel that it should be legal to use deadly force to stop abuse like what you saw with Sylvester? Should you have been able to shoot should it, should you be able to shoot someone doing that to make them stop?
1: I tell you, if I were an adult now and I saw someone abusing animals, an animal, I would probably do just about anything to stop it. Just as I would do anything to stop someone hurting uh, another innocent person or abusing another innocent person or, or, you know, uh, about to kill another innocent person. I would do whatever was in my means to try to stop that.
0: Would you, um, would you like yes. to see the society that allows that? Cause I would for sure.
1: A society that allows that. Yes.
0: <laughs> I, it's not, I don't um, mean it in a joke yes. in any way lightheartedly. Yes. I, I mean that if you see an animal abuse being abused, you should be able to use deadly force to stop that.
1: I think most of the time we could probably get get it um, accomplish what we need to without having to use deadly force.
0: But you couldn't have uh, you know, because it, you were you were you were smaller than your this uncle that abused Sylvester. And I
1: was, but but here's the here's the thing. It just took me speaking out and telling my uncle the the uncle who was abusing Sylvester. It all it took was me telling him. I know what he's doing, and I'm going to tell others if he continues to do it. And that alone was enough to stop him.
0: In the meantime, think, you have to watch yeah. right then on the spot. You have to watch him throwing that dog yeah. against the wall again and again and again. Each time that dog is thrown against the wall is, is one time too many.
1: Oh, I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. But, you know, I think, I think with most forms of abuse, they hide behind secrecy. And the moment you expose it, I think that's that's the key to ending most forms of abuse. It was the same thing with my, with my abuse. When my uncle, when I finally stood up to my uncle and I told him to stop it, he understood because it was the first time I ever uttered any words of protest uh, against what he was doing to me. He he understood with just those two words, "Stop it." He understood that if he continued, I was going to. That, that I was not going to be silent anymore. He got it. And I think that's, that's a really a key thing to, to ending abuse is not being quiet about it, not being silent, speaking up about it. Most people are actually, people who, who abuse others, animals or children, anyone weaker than them, I find most of them to be, um, in a sense, kind of cowards. And the moment you, you bring it to light, what they're doing, I think you're going to stop most of that abuse.
0: Maybe if you're from a community where it's not accepted, but if you're in Tennessee or Kentucky where the where the society is different, I'm not so sure. I'd, I'd like to see a federal law that, that allows you to do that. So it's not a state law. So some backward state couldn't say, yeah, it's okay to abuse animals. It's okay to have puppy mills. I'd like to see you federally protected uh, you know, if, if you have to intervene during yeah. animal abuse.
1: You know, what's funny is that I, I just heard about um, in California, for example, traditionally farmed animals like pigs and cows are um, considered animals under their Animal Welfare Act um, or their welfare laws for animals. And in California, and someone may be able to to tell me that I'm wrong here, but this is what I heard. I don't know for sure, but this is what I heard, that if you see an abuse of an animal, you can interfere. But when people see pe- uh, farmers, for example, factory farmers, throwing piles of animals out because they're diseased or, or really sick, but they're still alive, and people have tried to get and rescue those animals to stop that abuse, and, and unfortunately, the police keep siding with the farmers. They won't let people take those animals out of that abusive situation. So it's, we have it for some animals. But we don't have it for all animals, yeah. that protection. And you think about it, why? Why? What's the difference? Ultimately, what is the difference between a pig and a dog? It's just that we happen to, we decided at some point perception. in our just, history, It's just
0: awareness and perception, I guess.
1: It is. And, you know, at some point in our history, we decided one was going to be someone we eat and the other was someone we were going to have in our families. But you know, yeah. pigs. Pigs are intelligent. They feel emotions. They're um. They're they're ultimately are not really different from dogs or cats. But you're right. It is perception.
0: Even if you are not If even if you're going to eat the the animal, you could treat it with dignity while it's alive, and not tr- not trash and you know not shovel half dead animals into a pile and let them just die in a pile.
1: Yeah, that's horrible. And factory farming. And um, I also. Um, in the book, I described some of my um, travels to some of the factory farms in Oklahoma, and they were worse than I expected. And it's, it's one thing to read about factory farms. It's another thing to be there, to actually be there, because you're, if, you've never, if you're not used to it, as I was not used to it, you're, you get an, an, a, you know, an almost immediate physical reaction when you walk into a factory farm, your body is telling you that this, there is something not right with this place. And I felt that immediately. I was incredibly nauseous just from yeah. the bench.
0: And you know, I go into the market and I see, I see the chicken and I see the pork and I see this and that all neatly wrapped in its little cellophane thing. And I don't, I can't feel the fear and the horror that went along with creating that. And I, I'm not here yeah. to, yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to make people understand the reality. Cause what you see in the market is not the
1: reality. It's not. And it's hard for all of us, right? You know, um, it's hard for all of us to make that connection because we're it, these things are hidden from our view. Um, so, but, you know, I think it's important just, and, and what I hope to do with my book is, you know, the, the book ultimately, even though I have this negative part in the center of it, ultimately is a very optimistic, hopeful book. It explores the beauty of our relationships with animals through the stories of so many people that I've met throughout the country. But um, I also, you know, hope that it will open people's eyes up to to especially one of the the systemic forms of violence against animals. So that we're talking about, you know, the industries, as you mentioned. And, you know, I think I think that's a big step to trying to end that abuse. People just need to be aware of it.
0: Right. You know, I've been focusing on the negative, which there certainly is a lot of. But I'd like to get to the positive. You traveled around the country Well, you did visit. Farms, But you also traveled around meeting people and, you know, talking to them about their relationship with animals. Maybe we get a couple of those stories after this break. Okay? okay. Okay. Sure. We'll continue in just a moment with Aisha Akhtar MD. She has a book, our symphony with animals on health, empathy, and our shared destinies. It's WBZ Boston's news radio
1: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary.
0: Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. WBZ, Boston's News Radio, and we are with Aisha Akhtar, who has a book, Our Symphony with Animals on Health, Empathy, and Our Shared Destinies. It's about our relationship with animals. You traveled around the country, and uh, you met some people and had some experiences. Can you share... A few of those with us.
1: Sure. Um, so one of the one of the, the I think the, the most fun experiences that I had was um, I, I met David Lee in Ohio. Um, David Lee was a social worker back in the nineteen seventies and eighties, and he he is credited with starting the first um, the first the first program that introduced animals into a penal institution to help the prisoners. Gain some empathy, and um, we now see that animals are used a lot in prison uh, situations. Um, a lot of prisoners are working with dogs to help train them and make them more adoptable um, we're seeing shelters in um, in in uh, prisons as well where the inmates work with these cats again to socialize them and make them more adoptable a lot of, and and so David Lee was the guy who started it and so what happened was David was um, Working at what was called the Ohio State Hospital for the criminally insane, um, and this is this is um, built in Lima, Ohio. Lima, Ohio, uh, back in the early 1900s, and it is the second largest poured concrete structure in the world after the Pentagon. So it's this huge um, structure of multiple buildings around this uh, large courtyard. And um, it became notorious for the cruelty that the staff inflicted on the inmates. These were prisoners who were sick in some way or um, patients from other hospitals who became violent. And so, you know, you're, you have people here at this penitentiary who are murderers, rapists, um, drug, drug dealers, and so on. Um, but they were being systematically abused by the staff themselves and it it took a undercover investigation by some reporters to reveal what was going on at this ohio state at the ohio state uh, hospital and that led to landmark changes in and re- reformations and one of them was that david lee decided to bring some animals into the institution to see it would help brighten the lives of the inmates and would actually um, decrease, the, decrease the fighting and decrease the problems and maybe improve the empathy in the inmates. And what happened was absolutely amazing. Within just a few days, he brought some fish first in an aquarium and some birds in a cage. And within a few days, he saw some amazing results among these inmates. These inmates were now introducing other people to my birds or my fish, and by 60 days, there was a tremendous improvement uh, among these inmates compared to the wards where there were no animals. So among these inmates, there were no suicides, uh, and there were a lot of suicides on the other wards, and these inmates had um, decreased their use of drugs. They were just improving in the presence of these animals. And it's it's so remarkable because these guys, you know, you've got these, these are mostly men, some of them very violent, And yet they were showing this incredible tenderness towards these animals. Some of them would even refuse when they were finally um, uh, made better. Some of them even refused to leave the hospital unless they could take their animals with them, which was granted in most cases. So that was a really fun story to learn about. Um, And David Lee is just just a charming person.
0: So you're saying the tenderness towards animals extrapolated towards humans as well?
1: Yeah, in some cases, it definitely did. It wasn't a, um, a control study all the way through. So, you know, we couldn't show that for sure with all the patients. But um, there were some, uh, some of the inmates who were definitely making that connection. Some were saying things like, I never felt any kindness towards animals before. And, and it's made, being with animals is making me a calmer person. Um, I, I'm, I'm less inclined to fight with the other inmates when I just go and hang out with my fish. So just being in the presence of the animals and having that connection with the animals was really having an effect on a lot of these inmates. And um, there, were, there were cases where some of these there were some inmates who had not spoken a word when they were, on, when they were in the hospital. And it wasn't until the animals brought, were brought in that they started to speak to the animals and then to each other. So the animals helped socialize these, the people with each other as well.
0: Are humans the only animal with a capability of cruelness, with a capacity for cruelness? And this is where your training would come in. If so, what about the the brain? You're, you're a neurologist. What about the human, the makeup of the human brain makes that possible, or causes that? What's going on there?
1: We're not the only species capable of cruelty. There are other species, chimpanzees can inflict. Cruelty and violence on others, um, but we no other species does it like us does it as often as us so I would say that, that, that actually shows
0: not that animals are, uh exhibit cruelty, but that chimpanzees are extremely human like
1: yeah. Well, you know, and we are very chimpanzee like. Um, So, uh, yeah, there's uh, definitely a connection there. We are and we have the means now. We have the capability to inflict cruelty on massive levels, you know, because of industry. We we've mechanized cruelty. We've mechanized cruelty in factory farms, in laboratories, in fur farms, in the puppy mills, as you mentioned. We've mechanized it. So it's we, we can be cruel to animals in numbers that are just you know overwhelming when you think about it. We now cause more cruelty in animals than ever before in human history.
0: Do you eat meat? Have you s- stopped eating I don't. Meat?
1: I did stop. I did stop. So a lot of people think because of my name that I'm Indian and therefore was a Hindu. No, my family was from Pakistan. And we ate meat. We ate a lot of meat. My dad um, butchered goats and other animals for us from time to time. And um, actually, it's a, it's a story. Um, when I was uh, in high school, uh, my sister sent out for some information from an organization. She thought it was a, um, a wildlife organization. And what we got was a story about one cow. It was a story about a downed cow. So downed cows are cows who are too sick to move. And so um, it was this one cow and what happened to her and how she was treated and how she was kicked and beaten and, you know, tremendously abused and just reading that one story, you know, my mom began read the story, she passed it to my mom who read the story, she passed it to my other sister and then to me. And at the time, you know, we had cats and we loved our cats. And we made that connection between the cat our cats and the cow and we started realizing that it wasn't really all that different. You know, what it, you know, there there isn't much of a difference between the cow and our cats. And so that day after we read the story my mom came down to the kitchen table and she said that's it I'm no longer serving meat in this house and uh believe it or not the the family agreed on the spot we all just agreed i i, I it's kind of remarkable because i know this doesn't happen often but we became vegetarians together as a family
0: Wow that's great and and you have it is it difficult to eat healthily i I've, I've cut away red meat and pork i do fish and chicken but i'm working my way down the food chain (laughs) is there any tricks to uh being you know remaining healthy what do you eat
1: oh god i eat so much i i love food i just want to tell you this i love love food i go to bed thinking about food i'm reading cookbooks when you know i'm lying in bed i love food um and uh you know you just you eat a variety of foods it's it's just like any diet you just eat a variety of foods don't deprive yourself you know um i don't i don't deprive myself of junk food all the time i treat myself but um the the thing is is that the your body will get used to whatever diet you ending up you end up adopting so when i when i became a vegetarian it took about a year and then my body was completely adapted to that. And the idea of eating meat became repulsive to me. And, you know, if I accidentally ate meat, I, I tasted it right away. And you know, what I've also found, for example, is the more I eat junk food, the more I want to eat junk food. The more I eat healthy, the more I want to eat healthy. You, my body just kind of, it, it, it adjusts. To the diet you give it. So if you're going to give it a healthier diet, it will adjust to it and you're going to find you're going to crave for those healthier foods as well.
0: As an aside, what's your favorite junk food?
1: It's my favorite junk food. Oh my God. Oh shoot. I'd probably say just simple, a big bowl of potato chips.
0: Wow. At least that's not terrible. I mean that's potatoes and minimally processed. All right. I, <laughs> I, I need your help here. Yeah. There are people in the audience, in this audience, who love animals but eat meat. And when Uh I tell them when I tell them how do you I ask them how you do that and they say, Well, it you need to pass a law. Until they pass a law against cruelty to animals, I'm I'm gonna continue to eat meat. Basically they say my behavior, just me changing my behavior won't change anything but i and i tell them as a matter of fact it will and as a matter of fact that's basically the only thing you really can do and even you changing your behavior deprives the marketplace of a profit and it definitely is important for you as an individual to change your behavior and not wait for some sweeping legislation
1: i think you're you you definitely uh you're definitely right there and we're we're seeing that um in the sense that so there was a an increased demand i guess more people were saying i don't want to eat factory farmed meat and so there was an increased demand for vegetarian or vegan options plant-based options and now we're seeing that's just like running wild right now we're, burger king is going to have the impossible burger um, as, as this big thing. And they, when they did a trial of it, I don't remember which state it was. They did a test of the impossible burger. It is sold out within a, an incredibly short period of time. And they knew they had a hit and even, even, uh, Tyson's food, for example, the, the, the man, the owners of Tyson's food have said, we know that, you know, the future is going to be more plant-based and so they're now investing in plant-based protein. So I think the more, you know, when we show with our dollars that we want more of this, we want, let's say, more plant-based protein, we do see that industry does switch. They, they don't, they just want to make money. And so, you know, if they can make money out of plant-based burgers, you know, or clean meat, you know, lab, um, a meat grown in the lab, they'll do it. They don't, they're not wedded to cruelty, um, to cruelty. exactly.
0: I would think they'd make more profit on a vegeta a vegetable based protein than a meat based protein because it it costs more to raise meat than get the protein directly from the the non-meat, correct?
1: I think initially there might be, you know, there's always when you first change um um a uh, a practice, there's an initial cost, right? You have to learn about this new product, you've got to adapt your um your uh, machines and so on to make this new product. There's always going to be an initial increased cost. But down the road, I I would expect it to be a more efficient process. And I think you're right. It would probably be cheaper for a lot of these companies.
0: Okay. I have a question that is more, more—it's a neurological question and not, has nothing to do with animals. Can I, may I ask it? Uh Uh-huh. I, I, uh, it's because you're a neurologist. I don't run into them every day. (laughs) So That's a good thing. <laughs> I read uh, a thing online that said these seven medications are bad for folks who are older and have issues with memory, etc. And it include antihistamines like Benadryl and other, like uh, I think maybe Valium. And the thing was that these things inhibited acetylcholine, which your brain needed to work. Is that is that true? And my real question is, if that is true. If you take acetylcholine supplements, will you get better memory?
1: That's a good. So the last question is a good question. We haven't. There isn't really anything out there yet that's really shown improved memory to to a strong degree. And I, I guarantee there are drug companies working hard to find that drug. Um, I don't know if if people have tried acetylcholine to improve memory, or uh, um, but the other the other side of the question. Yeah, drugs like Benadryl and, and, and Valium, they can affect our thinking. Um, it, you know, you know it, when you take it, it definitely can affect your thinking, right? Because uh, right. Benadryl can make you sleepy and Valium can affect your mood and, and, and can also make you sleepy and they, they, they affect your cognition. Long term, if you take them all the time, they probably will have an effect.
0: Okay. So, I, I, you know, when you hear something like that, you think, whoa, I don't want to take that stuff. I was, and I was thinking, well, if that depletes acetylcholine, mm-hmm. if you take a whole, you know, if you're eating foods rich in acetylcholine, maybe it would be a wash and you'd be okay.
1: <laughs> that, that might be, you know, the thing is, is that we, we never know ex- all the things that a drug does. We know some of the things that a drug does. A lot of times the drugs that we end up, we end up having, um, when researchers are, are looking for a new drug for this thing or a new drug for that problem, a lot of time it comes out um, um, almost by luck. We find that, hey, um, so, so I'll give an example. There's a drug called Neurontin, and we thought that initially we were using it for seizures. It turned out not to be very good for seizures, but uh, in it, while, when we were using it, we saw that it actually is good for sleep, and it improves uh, restless leg syndrome.
0: Right, and we don't uh, know- Viagra was for hair. And it didn't do right. much for hair, but it did other stuff.
1: <laughs> exactly. So a lot, of, a lot of time we find out that, hey, this drug has this other effect. We don't always know how or why. We don't know all the mechanisms. So um, I think, you know, with Benadryl and these other things that affect cognition, um, you know, there's, there's always more to the story. We, we know just a little bit about it, but there's a lot more we don't know about how these drugs work.
0: Okay. Folks, uh, I didn't want to go through every part, everything in this book because I want to leave some of it for you. I mean, there's a certain richness to reading the book that you're not going to get listening to me talk about it. So I hope you'll get Our Symphony with Animals on health, empathy, and our shared destinies. Aisha Akhtar, thank you.
1: Oh, I had a great time. Thanks, Bradley. All the best. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?